Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened to this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this episode uh, is episode 9, May 17th to May 23rd, 1861. Last week, we talked about the Camp Jackson affair, and more importantly, Nathaniel Lyon neutralizing of the state militia in St. Louis, which will affect Missouri early in the war. Then we ended last week with a real uplifting discussion about prisoner of war camps in the Civil War. This week, we have a few scattered events as the two sides continue to ramp up the building of their armies. So let's get into it. To open up, let's talk about some of the early naval actions of the war. We have two events from this week happening in Virginia. One would actually be technically next week, but decided to pair them together because they are very similar. Uh, Blockading of the Chesapeake Bay became an objective of the United States Navy, as uh, we we discussed, uh, you know, the Anaconda Plan being able to cut off Uh, the South economically, so that's definitely uh, on their to-do list there. As a response, Confederates would install batteries close to Norfolk, Virginia, uh, where they had recently come into possession of the Navy Yard there, the Gosport Navy Yard, or Norfolk Navy Yard, um, as we talked about in a previous episode there. From the 18th to the 21st of May, the gunboat USS Monticello would exchange fire with the batteries on Sewell's Point, uh, hence the name Battle of Sewell's Point. Casualties were low, maybe 10 men in total on both sides uh, collectively, uh, but still important nonetheless, a very early naval action. The shore batteries uh, were unfinished on the 18th, but would be occupied by Georgia troops on the 19th. In lieu of a Confederate flag, they didn't have have a Confederate flag yet, the Georgians actually raised their state flag uh, above the works. So it would be one of the first times the U.S. Navy would exchange fire with uh, Confederates during the war, Uh, one of the first times. Uh, May 7th had actually seen the very first, the USS Yankee, firing at Confederate positions at Gloucester Point, uh, which is also located there in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, The other thing I would like to mention is that these uh, uh, batteries at Sewell's Point, they're actually using uh, the captured armaments uh, that they received from the Navy Yard. So you remember that uh, there was an attempt to destroy the Navy Yard, destroy uh, all the munitions there, uh, but uh, they obviously didn't do as good of a job. Uh, and uh, so the Confederates had uh, these, these large guns that they were able to repurpose uh, for, these, for these shore batteries there. On the 29th of May, there would be more exchanges of cannon fire, this time at Akia Creek in Stafford County. Uh, Akia flows into the Potomac River and is not far from where uh, the Marine Corps base is at Quantico today. So uh, that's that's kind of the area we're talking about. Now the Potomac, just as a reminder, flows between Maryland and Virginia and is also the river that divides Virginia from Washington, D.C. 
removal of Confederate batteries on the Potomac would be important for the Union, an important goal. James Ward would command the USS Thomas Freeborn and exchange uh, fire with the Confederates uh, at their positions at Akia Creek. The Thomas Freeborn would be joined by the USS Anacostia and the USS Resolute the following day, and all three ships would be joined by the USS Pawnee on the third day. June 1st would see uh, the small force of ships bombard the Confederates for five hours, expending around 500 rounds in the process. Neither side, though, would suffer any men killed. Minor damages were inflicted on U.S. vessels due to the return fire from the batteries. And as another interesting note, this is the first uh, unsuccessful attempt to use sea mines against the U.S. Navy as well. The Confederates had deployed some uh, that were ineffective, uh, but at least there's sort of the gears are turning there. There would be uh, sea mines used, uh, you know, throughout the war, and this is just the first instant. Eventually, the rebels would withdraw from their positions uh, prior to the Peninsula Campaign of 1862, but obviously uh, we are we are not quite there yet, so uh, but uh, eventually these positions would be uh, abandoned by the Confederates. It is worth mentioning about the commander of the Northern Flotilla. James Harmon Ward had served as a midshipman and a lieutenant in the Navy prior to the start of the war. He had served off the coast of Africa in an effort to limit the slave trade. Ward would be involved in the founding of the uh, Naval Academy in 1845 and teach therein Annapolis to young midshipmen. During the war with Mexico, Ward would leave the Academy to take command of the USS Cumberland. and He would volunteer to lead the expedition to relieve Fort Sumter uh, back here in a previous episode, but obviously he was, he was not chosen for that job. On June 27, 1861, Ward would be struck by a bullet and killed while coordinating landing operations near King George, Virginia. And unfortunately, Ward would be the first U.S. naval officer killed during the war. May 20, 1861, we'll see the final southern state uh, secede from the Union in North Carolina. It's much the same story that we have already talked about when it, it comes to the Upper South and, and any border states as well. Uh, North Carolina will not wish to raise arms against their fellow southern states. Federal property had been seized in the state on May 1st. May 20th would see a convention concluding with a unanimous vote for secession. It should be noted that there were some who disagreed with leaving the Union, including a former governor of the state saying that North Carolina had, in fact, committed suicide with the uh, decision to leave the Union there. North Carolina, in general, was another state that did carry you know, certain Unionist sentiments. I know that perhaps I've been sounding like a broken record about these states, but I think it's important to understand that there were a lot of different perspectives a lot of different viewpoints all over. So it wasn't just uh, just a foregone conclusion. There were different uh, different voices that were being heard. 
Another interesting note, I think, is that North Carolina had drafted a Declaration of Freedom in Mecklenburg County on May 20th, 1775. So you'll notice that that 1775 is before 1776. So they had already decided they were going to leave uh, you know, the British Empire at that time. And their state flag would actually carry the dates, uh, both dates, May 20th, 1775, and May 20th, 1861, uh, all the way up until 1885. So both those dates were on the uh, state flag of, flag of North Carolina there. On May 21st, 1861, Richmond will take over from Montgomery, Alabama as the capital of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis would make his home at what would be known as the White House of the Confederacy, although uh, it was not, in fact, white. It was a gray stucco material, and uh, you can actually still see uh, that building today. It's still in uh, uh, Richmond. You can take a tour of the building, and it is not far from the house of former U.S. Chief Justice John Marshall, so it is in a uh, historically rich area of, of Richmond there. We've already highlighted uh, the importance of the city when it came to the industry of the Confederacy. Tredegar Ironworks would play a key role in arming the soldiers of the South. In addition, the city would also produce clothing for Confederate soldiers. There would be 28 hospitals in Richmond during the war, and Chimborazo, uh, which would be the largest, would contain 150 buildings and see some 76,000 soldiers during the war. Chimborazo is named for a mountain in Ecuador, also, also called Chimborazo. Uh, Dr. James McCaw would create an ideal hospital with the wooden structures, a more modern uh, hospital, I guess I should say, as well. There would be 30 to 40 surgeons amongst numerous staff, which did include women and hired slaves. We mentioned prisons also located in Richmond last episode, so that's also uh, an important uh, aspect of the city. And the population of the city would actually triple during the war with the amount of people coming in, so it is becoming even larger. May 23rd, we actually see voters in Virginia choose secession as well. Because of this, there would be an immediate response from the north. We have already mentioned that Virginia, being across the river from uh, the District of Columbia, posed a problem. Robert E. Lee's house could be seen from the nation's capital. It would be important to secure the shore for protection and a landing area to move forward and you know, deeper into Virginia. On to Richmond was a classic rallying cry for the northern forces in the eastern theater, and you, know, you start to see on to Richmond uh, early in the war, especially after Richmond becomes the Confederate capital. On May 24th, and yes, I understand that is technically next week, uh, federal forces would move to occupy Virginia soil. Assaults over bridges would be combined with an amphibious landing, and uh, the Confederates would withdraw without a fight. Among the forces that would cross the river and move into Virginia, uh, especially the town of Alexandria, which is at that point a, a pretty important uh, port and, and rail hub there in northern Virginia, uh, was actually one of the most famous soldiers at the time, and uh, the Union Army, uh, Elmer Ellsworth. Now, 
You probably have not heard of Elmer Ellsworth unless you you study the Civil War, uh, but you know it should surprise you that he was in fact one of the more famous names uh, in the army. So he is very was very recognizable, and he is a very interesting character. So I do want to take a little bit of time to introduce him properly. He came from humble beginnings in Saratoga Springs, New York, and which is not far, actually far from West Point, and certainly. If he was able to afford it, uh, he most likely would have uh, attended West Point. But unfortunately, uh, you know, he was as a young man, uh, his family was uh, not not quite so, um, you know, economically uh, inclined to to send him there. So he has to uh, work hard to to build everything that he eventually you know gets to, which is uh, sort of uh, inspiring as well. But uh, he will move to Chicago and work as a law clerk. During that time, he would actually join the local militia. And local militias at this time, uh, especially, you know, before the war, are more social clubs than anything, uh, something to do. You, you march around with your, with your buddies and, uh, you know, go, go have, grab a couple beers maybe. Um, now that's sort of the, uh, uh, what, what being in a militia is like. Uh, however, uh, not, for, not for Elmer Ellsworth, he would sort of uh, take to the drilling and prove to be uh, an excellent officer. He eventually becomes an officer of the militia unit. And during that time, he would impart on his men a very strong sense of morality. Like Abraham Lincoln, he was a teetotaler, and uh, so he did not actually drink. And if any of his uh, men in his militia unit were to drink or visit a, a house of ill repute, shall we say, they would be removed from the unit. It was while in Chicago as well that he would actually meet an interesting figure, a former French officer working as a fencing instructor. This particular French officer was not just somebody who had served in the French army, but he had served in a unit known as Zouaves. Now, Zouaves were originally a North African light infantry unit that would become part of the French army after the French occupation and colonization of Algeria. The name Zouave comes from the tribe of Berbers in the Jurjura region that provided troops for the French. These Zouaves would prove themselves to be an elite unit, and soon native French would be able to join uh, as well, so it's not just uh, the Berbers. Zouaves served in the Crimean War and wars in Italy, which is where they started to capture the imagination of Americans. Suaves would continue to serve in the French army all the way up even to World War I. Ellsworth would use the knowledge he learns from his French fencing instructor in the drill and dress of his militia cadets. He would challenge other militia units to drill competition and eventually make a traveling event with his men, which caused excitement in various northern cities. The show was apparently entertaining, with the men reloading while on their backs, and there were elaborate bayonet routines. The tour would take them to the White House lawn, where they would even perform in front of President Buchanan. Despite national recognition, Ellsworth would return to being a law clerk after meeting Abraham Lincoln. A sort of father-son relationship develops between the two, 
Ellsworth would accompany the newly elected Lincoln as he traveled from Illinois to Washington. When the war begins, Ellsworth would have used his connection for a placement in the War Department, uh, but uh, he would rather actually have a field command. This might have been spurred by criticism he received that his unit and drill was simply for show and that it was not really for actual war. Ellsworth would create a regiment made up of New York firemen, the 11th New York, and they would be known as the Fire Zwaves. Firemen were a tough group and a good stock to recruit from, also very athletic, so they also have uh, the same kind of uh, tributes that uh, would be conducive to the, the drill that uh, Ellsworth has been having his uh, cadets uh, perform. Ellsworth would be helped in recruiting efforts by Horace Greeley. Greeley would play a part in the Civil War as the editor of the New York Tribune, a popular paper especially amongst Republicans. Greeley had been a free soiler and advocated for letting the southern states go peacefully following their secession. He would come to embrace the Republican Party and eventually support emancipation later in the war. Greeley also had an interesting relationship with Lincoln, and uh, more often than not, he was critical of the president in his, in his writings. The 11th New York would move through Alexandria with now Colonel Ellsworth at their lead. A large Confederate flag had been flying from the Marshall House Hotel in Alexandria, and it was so large that you could actually see it from the White House, so Lincoln can see this very large flag. With his rough troops now in what they considered enemy territory, Ellsworth thought it prudent to remove the flag, lest there be any incidents. It should be noted, however, that this was not his goal, a mere detour on his way to secure the telegraph office in town. Accompanied by four men, he would remove the flag, but while descending the stairs, he'd be faced by innkeeper James Jackson. Jackson was definitely a supporter of slavery and seems to not be a very nice guy, abusing the slaves that he owned, so he was actually well known for that. And he was not happy with the removal of the flag, uh, he has a shotgun, and he unloads both barrels into Ellsworth, who uh, is killed instantly. Jackson would then be shot and killed by a corporal, uh, who would be actually awarded the Medal of Honor for doing so. Lincoln will take the loss uh, very hard. Uh, you remember he had developed a, a relationship with Ellsworth, and it was actually said that uh, the president was not uh, not the kind of guy who had made the, these kinds of relationships often, so uh, he definitely uh, is, is very sad by the loss of Ellsworth, and he wrote personally to Ellsworth's parents, uh, and so we have an excerpt of that uh, letter. My dear sir and madam, uh, in the untimely loss of your noble son, our affliction here is scarcely less than your own. So much of promised usefulness to one's country, and of bright hopes for oneself and friends, have rarely been so suddenly dashed as in his fall. In size, in years, and in youthful appearance, a boy only, his power to command men was surpassingly great. 
This power, combined with a fine intellect, an indomitable energy, and a taste altogether military, constituted in him, as seemed to me the best natural talent in that department I ever knew. And yet, he was singularly modest and deferential in social intercourse. My acquaintance with him began less than two years ago, yet through the latter half of the intervening period, it was as intimate as the disparity of our ages and my engrossing engagements would permit. To me, he appeared to have no indulgences or pastimes, and I never heard him utter a profane or intemperate word. What was conclusive of his good heart, he never forgot his parents. The honors he labored for so laudably, and in the sad end so gallantly gave his life, he meant for them no less than for himself. The young 24-year-old colonel's body would be displayed in the White House using relatively new embalming techniques. Thousands would come to see one of the first Union officers killed in the war. Remember Ellsworth would be a battle cry for many Union units, including the fire zouaves. Many more men would enlist, filling the ranks Lincoln sought. Still, Elmer Ellsworth would help in stoking more of a fire for zouave fever. During the American Civil War, there would be a continued enthusiasm for units to adopt the zouave dress. It did not end with Ellsworth. To the modern mind, it may seem ridiculous to want to wear a uniform such as what the zouaves wore. Baggy pantaloons, gaiters that secured the bottom of the trousers, a vest and a fez equipped with a tassel at times, in some cases a turban as well to wrap around the fez, although generally that was only worn on parade. In a pinch, the turbans could actually be used as uh, field tourniquets on the battlefield. For one thing, the clothing was designed to be worn by men in a desert environment. Therefore, it was more comfortable, especially in the extreme warm southern months. At least it was as comfortable as wool clothing could be, I suppose. For another thing, it was flashy. You could look like a normal soldier, or maybe you could look different from all the other blue-clad boys catching the interest of the ladies. There were a wide variety of combinations and colors amongst Zouave uniforms, so they were very unique. And the units themselves were also seen as elite. They would be targeted more due to their clothing on the battlefield, but uh, fight just as hard. So perhaps there was also an honor factor as well. There would be many famous regiments throughout the war. The 5th New York, or Duryea's Zouaves, the 114th Pennsylvania, or Collis's Zouaves, the 9th New York, or Hawkins Zouaves. These units will continually play a part in our story, especially in the Eastern Theater. Chasseurs, or Hunters, were a similar unit that uh, particularly Union forces were inspired by. In Napoleonic times, light infantry, uh, such as chasseurs, were used for rapid movement and action, hence the name hunters. In German, these troops would be known as, as Jaegers, also the word for hunter. In the Civil War, dress was similar to the Zouave units, but 
without the fez, instead wearing a more common cap. Uh, the pants were not as baggy as the Zouave style, but they were still fairly close. And one of the more famous units uh, that, were, that was like this was the, the 14th Brooklyn, originally the 14th New York State Militia. The 14th Brooklyn would have a false vest that was sewn into their jackets and red pantaloons. The red pants would actually spark the nickname Red-Legged Devils. They're going to be serving here in the Eastern Theater as well. The Confederates also had Zwolf units, but certainly on a lesser extent than the Union forces. Most famously, Southern Zwolves would come from the state of Louisiana. A heavy French connection would uh, lead to the creation of Zwolf units, most notably the Coppin Zwolves and Wheat's Tigers. Roberto Wheat was a mercenary before the war. And actually, if you recall our conversation about William Walker, uh, Wheat was a filibuster in Cuba. And right before the war starts, he's actually going to Italy. He's on his way to Italy to fight alongside uh, Garibaldi, uh, the famous Italian revolutionary. Uh, but once Louisiana secedes from the Union, he actually turns around and comes back. Wheat Suaves would be recruited from New Orleans and gain a reputation for ill-discipline, but effective fighters nonetheless. George August Gaston de Coppin would form a Zouave unit made up of many immigrant soldiers. 11% of the soldiers from Louisiana were foreign, New Orleans being an important port city and the largest in the South. Coppin himself was Belgian, and many of his men were veterans of the Crimean War. It may surprise you to know or maybe not if you've never heard of Zouaves before, that America would not be the only location where the Zouaves would gain popularity. Zouave units would be formed in Spain. The Zouaves of Death were a Polish Zouave unit that fought well in a uh, revolution against the Russians. Uh, they were commanded by a French officer, so that's where the inspiration came from. And they also wore all black, which I think is, uh, is pretty cool for these Zouave uniforms. Unfortunately, though, much like the Borg, their resistance was futile. Brazil and the Vatican would have Zouave units as well. It's interesting to note that during this time period, there was a global craze, uh, something that we might not think about very often. I think that this is just about enough of Zouave talk for one day, although I certainly could continue. But we went over some of the first naval actions of the war, as well as mentioned uh, the final piece of the Confederate puzzle in North Carolina. So all the states are ready to go. We talked about an early hero uh, of the war in Elmer Ellsworth, and I got to talk about Zwabs. Next week, there we were a little light, but I think that what I'm going to do is talk about armaments and equipment of the soldiers who will be fighting in the war. In addition, I am thinking of maybe getting into the motivations of average soldiers during the war as well. So we'll, we'll see how much, how much time we have, how we put it all together next week then. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Uh, post it in the description. Should be a, a link to the website with uh, images. Certainly I'm going to be posting some images of Zwaves uh, uh, so that you get a, a good idea. It's not just me describing it. You get a good visual. There's also a link to the Patreon and uh, uh, Venmo information as well. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be certainly welcome. Once again, feedback is also appreciated. Uh, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. And uh, any kind of questions, comments, concerns, more than welcome. 
So thank you all for listening and have a great week.